Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to summer, serious summer, hot weather, beautiful blue skies, um, and no rain. So there you have it. It's, it seems to be you can have one, you can have the other, but you can't have both. Now, in this particular period of extraordinary load shedding and the need to be seen with the Makati Max at Davos, Sir Ramaphosa decided that perhaps it's not a good look to go to Davos given the crisis and he should stay here. So he cancelled his trip to Davos. Now, I think we're now at the stage years down the line where he can go to Davos, he could stay here. Either way, it's not going to make any difference. His his position is a purely performative one. But there is a funny element to the saga as well, or to the saga rather of, of load shedding, and that is – that he had arranged an urgent meeting with, a, with, with political leaders from other parties, as well as their National Energy Crisis Committee, which is situated in the presidency, and the ESCOM board. Um, clearly, the notice they got was fairly short, and uh, the, the Ramaphosa's parliamentary councillor, Gerhardus Kornhoff, said that they sent them a message saying, alerting them to a meeting starting at nine, at seven o'clock in, in the evening. And he apologizes for the late notification. Well, DA leader John Steenhuisen couldn't attend because of stage six load shedding. Um, African Christian Democratic Party leader Kenneth Meshwe and African Transformation Movement leader Voyo Zungula also declined because of load shedding. Although Zungula did add that uh, participating was a fairly meaningless exercise um, because he said the president basically undermines opposition parties parties and comes and says whatever he wants to under the guise of consulting. I think that may, be well, may well be right. Uh, Bonjo Halamisa says he couldn't come because he was busy uh, finalizing a joint court application against ESCOM and I think it's Minister Gordon, overload shedding. And uh, FF Plus leader Peter Kronewald said this, this was just a waste of time and that the only way to resolve the crisis was to remove the ANC from, from power. And the EFF have given up attending a long time ago. So load shedding is getting a little uncomfortable possibly even for the minister, even the ministers and the president, even though their, their state housing is never, ever load shedded because they have to be available 24-7. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Uh, I'll say a little bit about the Zuba Foundation's failure to have their case, their private prosecution against Cyril Ramaphosa progressed. Uh, Ramaphosa went to court to interdict the action. To be honest, I actually can't remember why. It doesn't put an end to the action, but it certainly pushes, kicks it into touch. And the Gauteng High Court granted him the interdict. Now, his uh, Zuma's... Head of the foundation, um, Mzwandilia Mani, said that this was a travesty of justice. Wow. Uh, talk about the pot calling the kettle black, shall we say. Um, and then he, the, the strangest things were, were referred to. 
money took particular exception to the full bench to the full bench's assertion that the civil court had jurisdiction to adjudicate on the matter, even though Zuma had instituted a private criminal prosecution, which the matter was said to be heard on Thursday. And they he, they want to challenge the failure to separate the matter, and that the Gauteng Deputy Judge President Roland Sutherland, who delivered the judgment for a full bench of three, had to explain why it is that when it is a criminal court, they wear red robes, and when it's a civil case, they then wear black robes. Why is that significant if a court is a court? And basically, um, the. The, the money apparently was got himself into such a, a froth he was visibly enraged. Now that gives you some idea of the quality both of the representative and and uh, former President Zuma himself is generally you know the the thing to do in public is to note the decision, um, perhaps express your disappointment, and we'll decide what to do to take it forward. But this has never been. The, the modus operandi of, of Jacob Zuma. It's, it's, it's pure bully ball, a bully boy, puff up your chest, beat your chest approach, which is, I mean, let's be honest, it, it, it gets tired and it really, really looks like it, it's, it's, it's the performance rather than the substance. And there's, there's a nice little twist to this matter because I think it was Dalian Porfu who acted, who's acted for most recently for the public protector. This was yet another case that he appeared before a court for which he failed and failed to succeed. So his, his, uh, his reputation as a successful advocate is somewhat diminishing, but I imagine financially, um, you know, he's really, he's, he's really way on top of, uh, way on top of things. Um, anyway, the, the there's accusations of skullduggery, etc., etc., etc. Now, uh, just a quick note on, which will surprise no one, that economists see a 45% chance of a South African recession in uh, 2023. Apparently, the odds went from 35% in November of last year um, and climbed up a 10 percentage points. Uh, the risk intensifies, obviously, what with a load shedding, uh, energy not being resolved, getting worse, but also the, the poor global economic uh, prospects, which relate to energy because of the Ukraine war and a variety of things that we've been exposed to. But essentially, our, our sliding down the scale of stages of load shedding is doing uh, nothing much to, uh, to, to help us. Um, and to, I, well, let's put it this way. I want to, I want to try and find a way of getting someone who can sort of put the, what needs to be done in, in one interview. And I'm, I'm, I'm working on that at the moment so that we can actually get a sense of whether, what can be done within what time frames, if anything at all, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we need to work on that because I don't know about you, but I keep getting exposed to, um, you know, articles that say, yes, we can rely to a great extent on renewables. No, we can't. The grid can't take it. Anyway, we need a, a base load that is supported by something more reliable like uh, uh, coal or gas, etc. So I think, uh, as I say, I'll, I'll look into seeing what we, what we can do about that. Um, so our economy is not likely to grow by more than 0.3% quarter on quarter through 2023, and this is according to Bloomberg. Now, 0.3 
is like not actually not growing. I don't know how they expect a, how they expect anything to happen. You know, on, on point three, grow what with what? I, I would have thought we would literally only be heading into negative territory at this stage. But uh, be that as it might, as it may, um, you know, no one's surprised. You also not be surprised that uh, uh, that the rand weakened. After President Silver Ramaphosa cancelled his trip to the World Economic Forum in Davos. Now, um, I, I, I'm not sure it's the cancellation of the Davos or the fact that he had to, he felt he had to cancel because of the crisis in electricity. And, uh, the, I think it's now gone to over 17 rand to the dollar. Um, I, 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 you know, if, if there's one thing we can expect, it's that the rand is going to yo-yo at best and 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 keep weakening most likely, given the fact that there is nothing that would really make uh, the economy attractive enough for 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 there to be much strengthening of the rand in this year. Then and again also related, and I'm afraid it's the it's a it's the issue of the day. On Sunday, residents of Phoenix closed off roads by burning tires, and they call them following service delivery issues. That's the heading in the newspaper. However, it's when they say service delivery, they mean they have not been without, with electricity. So it's a combination of load shedding, and then when the load shedding is supposed to end, they're still without electricity. And in, uh, for some residents, this has been for a period of, uh, of of two weeks, and they blocked off the Phoenix Highway. Phoenix Highway. It's, and we've, and uh, there will be people listening out there who, who have the same experience, is you have your patch of load shedding, it ends, but the electricity doesn't turn on, probably because the surge into the, uh, into the system, into the near, you know, the nearby, uh, uh, sorry, from the little hut that provides you electricity, has blown. It just couldn't take the, uh, the surge. And then the, Status, the state rather, of some of the, that infrastructure is not great anyway. Um, the, the people in Durban are complaining about, uh, you know, having to throw away huge bags of bin, uh, bags of bin, bin bags of food, and that the heat in Durban is unbearable and the community is on edge. Well, all I can say is I really, really don't uh, blame them. Can you imagine Durban without, uh, without Air conditioners. It's just uh, too horrible to contemplate. High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. I was sticking to the issue. I was taken by an article written by Hilary Joffe, who is the editor at large of uh, uh, Business Day and has a a long, well-established career in the area of finance and economics journalism. Um, she also at one time, and for, I would imagine, fortunately for her, she, she would feel not at this time, she was once the spokesperson, spokesman for ESCOM, can you imagine? But this was before the bad, 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 bad old days. Um, and I was hoping to have uh, Hillary on, but it seems like we've not been able to connect with her, so I'd like to go through what some of the issues she raises. What she's essentially discussing is the fact that uh, Gwedi Mantashe, who's the Minister of Mineral uh, um, of, of, mi- of Mining and Mineral uh, Resources, 
may become the sole boss of ESCOM because they might, they're talking and they put a resolution hurriedly at the end of the ANC conference as these ten, things tend to be, a resolution that the entity should go into its sort of line management department. Now, the, what Hillary says is that what, what, she doesn't understand what the ANC hopes to gain by moving state-owned enterprises, and this includes Transnet and ESCOM, but most, we're largely dealing with ESCOM, to their line departments. Um, the proposal to do so was apparently a controversial economic resolution emerging from the, from the uh, ANC conference. Um, and as she says, and I think we can agree with her, that the gathering was more about personalities than it actually was about policy. I mean, as, as we spoke, I think we spoke about it last week, that five days of conference, they decide to start with the election instead of end with it because it always ends up being chaotic, started unbelievably late, was chaotic, and they still had to rush through their resolutions at the end. So um, the the ANC's uh, electoral system, you know, is, is, a, is a topic on its own, and it's really unhelpful, and it's unhelpful also to the governance of the country, but be that as it may. The, posi- the policy resolutions, including this one, were discussed only in a brief late-night session. Can you imagine, you know, if anyone's even awake, in December, and then their adoption was delayed until the 5th of January when they sort of had a, a follow-up to just get, get through the business that had not get, got through in five days in, in December. And for for Hillary, this this is indicative of the fact that nobody is taking these resolutions particularly seriously um, as a guide to what the government might do. But in her view, this particular proposal um, could complicate efforts to tackle the two crises constraining economic growth and investment. And the two crises are in energy and in, trans- and in transport. Not clear so far what the SOE resolution means. Um, and be- by the time she'd written it late last week, the ANC had yet to publish the final text of the resolutions, um, which can only go by the drafts. It says that the SOEs that operate in specific sectors of the economy should be placed under the relevant government departments and that it narrows down to SOEs that are, quote, critical to providing economic infrastructure that facilitates private sector economic um, activity. Uh, And then the the only example they give is that transport SOEs must be under the Department of Transport. Now, even mentioning transport is really odd because the whole discussion apparently was prompted, prompted the resolution and the, it was all about ESCOM. It wasn't really about anything else. There's a notion among some in the ANC that public enterprise minister Pravin Gordon and outgoing ESCOM CEO Andre Dureta uh, have been distracted by the green energy and just transition Issues instead of focusing on fixing ESCOM's power stations, I'm sure they would have a very different view of their, of their, of what they are trying to do, and and the move to the mineral resources and energy minister Gwedi Mantashe, as the thinking goes, would be, he will make sure it's fixed and that ESCOM stops the load shedding that could rob the ANC of its majority in the 2024 elections. Now, there was a headline a couple of days ago saying, from Gwedi Mantashe saying, the problem will be fixed in 6 to 12 months. This coming from a man who, in his tenure as Minister of 
mineral resources and energy, ironically, he has not put a single gigawatt of energy on the grid. Nothing, nothing has come on during his tenure. Um, so we, we take that very much whence it comes. He, he, Guillemontache at risk of sort of, sort of disappearing from view, suddenly ascended to back to the chairmanship of the ANC at the conference and was the main focus, the main producer of the result that got Sir Ramaphosa into a second term in office. This was after Sir Ramaphosa had said he would resign because of the Palapala report um, and probably really desperately wanted to resign because I don't think he's enjoyed this job. One one, one out, I think he completely underestimated it. Um, and Gwedi was his main cheerleader. Now, he and Gwedi have history because they were both in the National Union of Mine Workers. So Gwedi pushed, he persuaded uh, Ramaphosa to stand. And bear in mind, of course, that however much friction, and there was lots of friction, opposition and noise and what hullabaloo at the conference, despite having dropped dramatically from a, in, being sort of over 60% popularity amongst, amongst voters to in the 40s because of what's happened in the recent past and including Pala Pala. Now, here's how good things are for the ANC. At, at, in the 40s, he still has a percentage popularity above any other candidate any other potential candidate, and his his real potential in this case was William Kize, um, and the party. So the bad news for the ANC is that the best option for them uh, politically is a man whose fa- who's, who's favorability has been rated at way below 50%. So anyway, that's what the ANC was faced with when they went to vote, and uh, much apparently, and we've discussed, much change, much money changed hands during the process of uh, prior to the voting, the buying of votes, it, it sounded like truly superb free market enterprise going on there. But this ascendance, the, the fact that Ramaphosa was uh, com- very comfortably uh, voted in and Gwede Mantashi was his main sponsor and went on to become chairman of the ANC again, um, and given his very much his commitment to coal and his reluctance over renewables, um, this will have helped to fuel the push to him to give him the control of ESCOM. And uh, the Department of Public Enterprise, which is run by Pravin Kodan, has hardly covered itself in glory in terms of enabling the operational turnaround that ESCOM and, and South Africa really, really need. However, and Henry makes a, <laughs> it's a, a firm and, and I think correct point is that if it's somewhat sarcastic, but I think it's accurate. It's hard to see why Mantashe would get Eskom's machines fixed just by the force of his strong personality or turn around the energy availability factor, which is getting disastrous, by even more political interference. Um, it's not as if that he or his department has a fabulous track record. The bureaucratic processes from that department for rolling out new independent power generation are legend. And there's no doubt, I mean, certainly one's impression of, of Gwede Mantashi is, while I think in, the, in, in certain elements of the mining industry uh, he's been looked on upon favorably, I uh, can't recall why, he's a man full of bluster, uh, and he's also, 
I think he will avoid making a decision, not for the same reason as, as Ramaphosa, which is to avoid making decisions, but he will only make a decision when something's on the table that is absolutely to his satisfaction. And clearly, in the few years he's been in the job, while ESCOM has been under his uh, tutelage, uh, nothing favorable has, has has come along. And basically, I think what this is saying is he doesn't have a currently enough fire firepower to to make the difference. Um, I can't believe I may, I may be naive about this, but I cannot believe that he offers a solution that could not have been put in place now if it was viable, and the ESCOM board would not be have been prepared to do it. I can't say for sure. We, you know, we, we say I say that subject to correction, but um, let's 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 just let's just leave it at that. But no, I I, I don't see it. I, I don't see them not improving things if there was something viable to do. Now, when it comes to transport, and, sorry, just the last thing, and that's because it applies to transport as well, is ESCOM may provide energy, and there may be an energy portfolio, but ESCOM plays too varied and wide a role in society to fall under a particular ministry. Um, it, it just doesn't make sense that you've got it either in public, you've got it in public enterprise and in energy, and it may, while it may not make any sense to be in public enterprises, it probably doesn't need to be in energy. It, it should be standalone managed, I mean, with however the government would choose to do it, but it's, it's it's nothing in South Africa operates well and will lead to economic growth without it. And the same goes to Transnet. Now, from Hillary's point of view, particularly as a financial journalist, when a company such as Trans, Transnet sneaks its financial results out on the evening of December the 22nd, it's a signal that something is very wrong. If you read the fired print, fine print, it turns out that Transnet breached its loan covenants with investors and had to ask for a waiver from them. Its rail performance, as we all know, was so bad that the cash the company generated did not adequately cover the interest on its debt. Uh, fortunately, investors did not call a default, luckily for Transnet, and maybe for us, I'm not sure, and at headline level, the company managed to show a tiny profit thanks to a couple of technical factors. The problem is that the mining industry is does not have the luxury of waiving its contracts with Transnet. It, it accounts for more than half of Transnet's total business and more than 80% of its freight rail business. And, the, and Transnet's dysfunction has cost the industry more than 80 billion rand in lost exports and lost production over the last two years because, of course, if you can't get your existing goods out for export, uh, your, your production is have to, going to have to be scaled back in order to um, to accommodate retaining the, the, the stock, which is not moving. And this has happened at, at a time, need, I don't need to say, when South Africa's economy should ideally have been placed to benefit from high commodity prices. And it seems like well, the period in the last few years we did, we're now not – we have we didn't under Mbeki. Um, we we by and large, by virtue of interference or incompetence or con- complete catastrophe of a, by the government, we lose these massive opportunities. And they are for this uh, for this economy, they are massive. Massive. 
Apparently, there's a letter that reveals that the Minerals Council of South Africa approached the Transnet board in December to, to demand urgent action to arrest the crisis. The council had early approached Pravin Gordon in an effort to get action and called for the CEO, Portia Derby, and other key executives to be replaced. It also, however, listed a series of detailed steps to sort out malfunctioning rail and port services, which are huge. Um, in other words, the mining industry said to the said to transport, said to CEO Derby that here are steps that can be taken to improve the problem. And they offered, oh God, and this, I mean, this is, you know, we, we've got a very adaptable private sector. They offered to parachute in industry experts to help Transnet. Um, the council did get a response late in December that the Transnet board and the council would set up, quote, collaborate structures to stabilize and improve Transnet performance. Now, it's at that point that I actually, I just want to bash my head on the table. Because, first of all, you know, the way you lead is you don't continually have board meetings and create structures to consult and who, and to collaborate with and who do you collaborate with and industry. You know, you, this crisis has developed over the last number of years. If you're going to lead, if you're going to manage anything, from a bakery on the corner to the rail network in South Africa, there's a point at which you make decisions. And if the crisis is big enough and people in the industry who know what they are doing offer to come in and help, you just say, yes, please, how soon? You do not create yet another structure, particularly with the council, the mineral council. You do not create any more structures. You just get on with it. And that's the, that's the reason why nothing happens in this country because, it, and this is where civil Ramaphosa's liability comes in. It's management by consultation and consensus. No, it's not actually consensus. It's lots of consultation, lots of meetings, lots of time spent. Eventually, eventually a decision may get taken. But as we said in a, one of the previous items about uh, meeting on uh, online with the political parties, and I suspect this is right. The ATM leader said, they "Talk to us, but they don't pay. Any, they really don't listen to what we say. They don't do anything we say." And I, I suspect that is probably true because I think we're dealing with, uh, particularly in, in his very uh, trade union history, in Sir Robert Posey, we've got a man who who places he's risk averse, he he's conflict averse. He places great importance by, con by talking and by consulting. Um, but at the end of the day, the decision actually isn't necessarily the key thing, or he, they'll go ahead despite what anybody else has said because they are the ANC and they want to do what the ANC wants to do, and nothing, it, nothing really, really matters. ESCOM is going to the and this was uh, this, this was my rant, but this was pointed out in uh, in, in Hillary's article, uh, and she says creating interministerial inter task teams or new oversight bodies or shuffling responsibility for poor entities around the place is not a fix for poor governance, poor management, or poor policy. More concisely said than me, but uh, that's where the emotion starts to uh, take over and the bile rises in the throat. Um, and as I say, the trouble is 
not structural. It's operational and managerial. And that, in, in a word, I think is, is indicative of the ANC's inability to operate and manage. That is not what they're good at, and that's why our SOEs and our economy in general is in such bad shape. Because as soon as you make a decision on operation, it means something's going to happen. As soon as you make a managerial decision, something has to happen. And if something happens, you take responsibility. If it's good, you take you have to take responsibility. If it's bad, you have to take responsibility. Cyril Ramaphosa does not like taking responsibility, and he is the president. He he leads from the top, I'm afraid, and or not, as the case may be. She points out that this is a delicate time, and when ESCOM has to appoint a new CEO, and Transnet management is under fire and being called upon to resign, things are looking wobbly to say the least. The government has spent many years promising changes to the SOE landscape, and literally from from Mbeki's governorship onwards, without anything, she says, use the word anything, not not much, without anything much, okay, coming of it. Um, and she thinks now that ANC's proposal could end up going that way too. If I could take bets on the station as to whether nothing much will happen now, um, I don't think I could take a bet. I think everyone would agree with me that no one would, uh, uh, no, no one would dis- disagree that nothing much is going to happen of things now. And uh, things are going to just go the way they've gone in the past. She says the risk, however, is that it adds an extra layer of uncertainty and instability that does not just fix what's not broken, but in the process breaks what needs to be set to be fixed. Amen to that. Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish. I just came upon an item this morning um, that I think will will. Surprise no one. It's an article by Peter Louis Myberg from the uh, Daily Maverick. He's one of the investigative journalists there. Um, and he notes that the Department of Health is set to spend nearly 500 million on a quote, suspicious and possibly irregular lease contract for its unsafe new head office outside Pretoria. Uh, although the tender was administered by the Department of Public Works, public works health officials were close, were closely involved. And as he says, red flags abound in Scorpio's months-long investigation. Now, you've got to admit, you know, when there's something questionable with the health department, it's never in the tens of millions. It's always in the hundreds of millions. Or So, you know, nice chunk of change. Now, basically what happened is that uh, there was a 486 million lease deal between the Department of Health and a company called HiroWorks, controlled by a, a businessman by the name of Herbert Teledi's Ntoezi Development. Um, now, the Department of Public Works administered the t- tender on behalf of the, of the health department, but senior health officials, apparently, were closely involved in the process. And after an open bid process collapsed under dubious circumstances, Hira Works in 2020 clinched a lease deal from the Department of Health through a tender, quote, deviation. So as a result, HiroWorks stands to pocket 149 million and 191 million more than it would have earned if it had won the deal through the open tender. The lawyers denied that there's anything shady about this, uh, but 
you know, <laughs> okay. Now, apparently, um, Dr. William Kiese, he of Digital Vibes fame, and who though has not been charged with any, any, anything criminal, um, is certainly has been investigated and it, for hundreds of millions going to him and his family, uh, you know, obviously nepotism, paternalism, patronage, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, theft, I don't know, whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, apparently he features in the series of developments that saw the health department move into its new building. And my book says that the, some of the events leading up to the contract bear a curious similarity to the Digital Vibes affair. Like Digital Vibes, HireWorks first won a contract from the Department of Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs when Mkise led that department. However, after Mkise took over the Minister of Health and uh, Traditional Affairs backed out of the contract, HireWorks secured a costlier lease deal from the Department of Health. I mean, you've, you've got to give them credit for I, I, I think chutzpah doesn't do it justice. Um, and there are other key figures involved. But it, it's like, it, 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 it strikes one as, uh, you know, I'll, if, if it, it gets interesting, I'll go into it in more detail. But it, it strikes one as, it's almost, there's a compulsion. It, 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 the, the money's there, the people are there, the offers are being made, the Schlenter deals are happening. It cannot be resisted. So, they happen. And uh, I think the problem is we have a, a, a really re- pretty free press and we uncover a huge amount. But I think we've hit probably the stage where we've uncovered so much no goodness about people that they've long passed the point where anyone would consider resigning because of a, a, a because of something, uh, some allegation of corruption or dirty dealings. In fact, uh, the president's indication that he would resign as a result of Pala Pala was probably the nearest thing we've had to anything to anything like that in government. So there reaches a point where it, it just doesn't make any difference anymore. It doesn't. If I believe, if you can't experience shame, everything is possible. And I think we have a party whose whose sense of self-aggrandizement is so great that any misdeed outside of it. Causes no shame. Um, so we'll have a litany of the mo- of really substantial investigative journalism bringing these things to light, and you know maybe they will end up being uh, being the result of civil and or criminal uh, legal action. But it's almost like you just have to wait for the dust to die down. The, the ANC doesn't take any action. It, it requires people to step down if they've been charged. If they've been charged, and that's that's so much so far very much the minority position. Where do you go? And then and there's the strange thing: it's the free speech has exposed the most extraordinary things. I mean, based on the stuff that's been exposed in the last 27 years, there shouldn't be anyone left standing, certainly from the ANC in in Parliament. But maybe it's just if you've got that far, you just let it wait for it to blow over. Your president won't take any action, and Bob's your uncle. All the, all the, all the people lower down the chain will, uh, will, will take the fall for it. Um, uh, anyway, uh, what can I say? Nice, nice little story here. Um, it's headed the, from The Economist, 
the glory of grandparents. Um, it's, it's a little bit of a diversion, but it, uh, it was it was irresistible. And the headline, subheadline says, "Why the soaring number of grandmas and grandpas is a good thing." Um, and they refer to ge- demographic change in countries. Um, that although it's it's slow to take place, it eventually does shake up the world. People are living almost two decades longer than they did. 60 years ago, and women have half as many children. And one of the many ways in which all the processes I've just described has transformed family dynamics concerns grandparents. There are a lot more of them. They each have fewer grandchildren to dote on. And the chances are that, as I say, with the longevity and and, and improvement in health, grandchildren are much more likely to have two Grandparents, a grandfather and a grandmother, uh, in their childhood to be part of their lives. Um, now, as we know, traditionally, the grandparents are very much they pass on tradition, they pass on knowledge, um, they're the link to to a child's the family's past, and uh, in some cases, they may help to bring up the children and to free up the mothers to work. But I think one of the most important things, and this is about indirectly politics because it's about uh, create, turning children into good functioning um, economic and political adults and that is that time spent with grandchildren is um, as many of you will know is very different to the time spent with your own children you have you, you, you're able to have more of what the, the much touted quality time that parents often talk about that I think from my own experience is largely mythical because if you're busy, you don't really have, uh, you don't really, you, you have to take the time you've, you've got. You can't really make, force that time to be quality. Grandparents can be different and, uh, there's, I think it's a discussion just to be had for the future and the, the advantage for generations, the current generation of young adults and below. I think it's a, it's a great thing. IFM. 101.9 megahertz of life. I think I'm going to just stick to matters of family and children in particular, and also referring to a Daily Maverick article about the wearing of uh, school uniforms. And the the writer, uh, Heather Blackensee, says that uh, she was listening to an informal poll on a radio station that she listens to regularly. And their parents voted almost unanimously that all students should wear school uniforms. And this was an issue that did not require significant debate. Uh, I have to say, I, I agree. I, I, I was on, sat on governing bodies for years, and I was, I was a firm believer in school uniforms. One could always make certain allowances for traditions and, and religious uh, practices, but at the, at the base of it, you, you gave a little bit, you, you got proper uniform, uniform wearing. And one of the primary reasons parents support the idea of a union Sorry, uniform uh, speaks to well. There's different aspects of site of safety. It allows teachers and staff to very quickly identify who is a student and who is not from a distance. Um, that means that schools can proactively manage potential thre- threats associated with unwanted visitors, intruders, threats of violence and theft. And that's that's not that's not unimportant. They're useful when you take kids on field trips uh, because there's. And she says it's nothing more terrifying for a teacher than a student wandering off while in a, on a school outing. 
um, a uniform makes them easier to see, and this is a good chance that they won't get too far away. Not uh, not uh, absolute, but uh, it helps. Also, one of the issues they say is that is the emotional safety of wearing a school uniform is critical to learner success. Um, and in this respect, and I, th- I think there's something, I think there's definitely something to that. School uniforms take out one of the many dimensions of bullying that are, that are prevalent in schools, and that's the um, ability or otherwise to follow fashion trends, brands of sneakers, um, whereas when everyone's dressed the same, there's, there's, there's less to become jealous and envious about and also, I found one of the advantages of uh, of school uniforms is what, is what she mentions is the wearing of clothes creating a sense of cohesion because it communicates a clear message of equality. Now, from again, from a personal experience, I think this is particularly important because my children, for example, were at schools where the, the, they were very mixed racially, but they were also very mixed in terms of class. So you had poor kids working-class kids, middle-class kids, upper-class kids. And the thing about wearing a school uniform is that n- that in no way revealed, identified, or, or made you uh, separated by virtue of your class. And I I think that has a lot of value. It, it, it's a visceral thing. It's a, it's a visual thing, but I think it's terribly, terribly uh, important, and I think that does make a difference. And I saw, and ironically, ironically, and but this may make sense from a point of view of value. The poorer kids often wore their uniforms absolutely meticulously. The richer kids tended to be sloppier about it and were usually the ones who kept being told to tuck things in and to stop, you know, making their, their their jerseys baggy. I'm sure everyone had kids with baggy jerseys. Um, so I agree with her when, when she says that this is particularly important in a school with a significant diversity. And I think, I think it, uh, I think, I think it helps. Um, I really do from, from day one. And I think there is much to be said for that in terms of creating a sense of equality, not equity, equality. The rest is, you know, a child's personality and their individual identity, and that's got to be dealt with on, on different terms. That you can't change. Having said that, uh, thank you very much for being with me. Um, you'll find our writings on dailyfriendoneword.co.za and our four-day-a-week podcast, um, The Daily Friend Show. It goes live at 1.30 every um, Monday to Thursday, uh, half an hour, and it is then uh, goes on to our website after six at six p m in the evening. So see you next week.